0: All right. well we are in Nehemiah, this is week 4 of our series, and so today we're in Nehemiah chapter 4, so if you happen to have a Bible with you, if you um, have a phone with a Bible app on it, I encourage you to go ahead and pull it out, because I'm going to read through, it should also be on the screen, but I'm going to read through all of chapter 4, so that we can kind of immerse ourselves in this story. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he mocked the Jews. He said in the presence of his associates and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, "'That stone wall they are building, "'any fox going up on it would break it down. Hear, O oh our God, for we are despised. "'Turn their taunt back on their own heads "'and give them over as plunder and a land of captivity. "'Do not cover their guilts, "'and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, "'for they have hurled insults in the face of the builders.' "'So we rebuilt the wall,' And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. But Judah said the strength of the burden bearers is failing and there is too much rubbish so that we are unable to work on the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see anything before we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived near them came they said to us ten times... From all the places where they live, they will come up against us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open places, I stationed the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. After I looked over these things, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your kin, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes." When our enemies heard that their plot was known to us and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and body armor, and the leaders posted themselves behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. The burden bearers carried their loads in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and with the other held a weapon. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread out, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Rally to us whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held their spears from break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night inside Jerusalem, so that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me ever took our clothes off. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. This is Nehemiah chapter 4. Again, Nehemiah is quite the storyteller, he's very dramatic. But you have to wonder, why do we tell this story? Why in the world do we spend time in the year 2021 looking at a relatively small story in history? Why? Why would we do this? Well, really, there's two reasons. And the first is, as the church, we want to be people who understand how we got here. We need to know the stories of our lineage, the history of our faith, and this small little story is a part of it. And we also, one of the practices of Christians is we look to our scriptures to see how God works in and through people when they are going through things that feel similar to us. As we examine scripture and the stories that we find, we see ourselves identifying with different characters and we can learn from those who've gone before things that they have done well and potentially not so well. And so in our cultural moment of rebuilding and restoring and potentially even beginning to dream again, we already have a lot of commonalities with what is happening here in Jerusalem some 2000 plus years ago. And today's portion of the narrative is no different. In our dreams and plans, we all have setbacks, frustrations, opposition. And so what do we do when we experience some friction, if you will, in our plans? When the haters come out and oppose our dreams and our desires, what do we do? This is where we're going today. So I want you to have that thought in your mind as we work through this. But I first want to talk about why it is that we're looking at this story at all. What does this event and these people, what does this have to do with the larger narrative of scripture? Why do we need to understand this? I feel like it's been like previously on Nehemiah. He's the cupbearer to the king, right? And he's won the king's favor. And so he's gone on assignment to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls because he had learned that the walls of the city had been burned and then the remnant of Judah, those who had left exile and who were there, they were left unprotected, living in rubble. And he felt this deep burden to act. He was full of sorrow and sadness that his people were living in such disarray. It makes sense why he's so burdened. I mean, his burden is twofold. One, this is his ancestors' home. These are his people. This is his family. There's so many of you again in such an international context with conflicts that happen on other parts of the world and civilizations and societies that have been disruptive. We understand that depth of burden that Nehemiah experiences, but he also has another piece to his burden. And that's that Nehemiah knows the promises that God made with his people and he wants to see those promises fulfilled. He understands that the larger story, up to his point, he knows that God spoke to the prophets and to the patriarchs of the faith. And he said, if you will uphold my commandments and follow my law, I will bless you and make you into a great and holy nation. You will be a kingdom of priests, my treasured possession. I'll bring you into the land that I've promised you. All of these promises have been a part of the law that was passed from generation to generation to generation, from the time of Abraham to Moses to David. And so Nehemiah's burden to see the promises fulfilled is understandable and commendable. The rebuilding of the wall is part of an upcoming recommitment to the law, the law that will include where and how they're meant to worship, what type of people they will be, how they're meant to interact with neighboring nations and with their God. And so I understand the mindset of Nehemiah. He's like, if if we can get these walls back up and if we can get the temple rebuilt, then we can worship God in the way that he told Moses we can start moving towards the fulfillment of these promises again because there was a time when all of this was happening as it should and then we, we walked away from our part and we lost it. So let's just get it back. And So that's the passion and the desire that we see from Nehemiah. His understanding of the covenant that God made with his people was all throughout this book. It's what's driving the action. Remember, Nehemiah had been in a position of power and influence and prestige as the cupbearer. so this isn't, his desire to act is not about him like hitting the next run, rung on the success ladder for him. This is a deep conviction. It's a profound commitment to restore the city of Jerusalem to its former glory so that the people of God can start living the way of Moses again so that their side of the covenant would be upheld so that God would fulfill his promises. Nehemiah is passionate. He feels called by God to do this. And truly what Nehemiah goes on to do is astounding. His leadership is decisive and it's effective. If you look up different commentaries or books on Nehemiah and to try to understand the story more, you'll be met with book after book about leadership lessons we learn from the life of Nehemiah. How is it that we rebuild well? How do we persevere in the face of adversity? How to get people to rally around a mission against all odds? It really is amazing. He is a splendid vision caster. He's charismatic. He assesses the problems, anything that's going to stand in the way of progress. He addresses it. He strategizes to keep things going. It's impressive. And all the while, he's working from a passionate love of God and a desire to do what's right in the eyes of his creator. And so when Nehemiah starts to experience some friction, we see him cry out, Oh God, help us says, we prayed to our God. He tells the people to remember the Lord. So it's absolutely understandable why Christians look at this story as one to follow when we want to see our dreams made manifest. Because we see Nehemiah getting it done all while acknowledging his creator. However, which if you've been paying attention for the last few weeks... We've hinted to where this story is going. That although the city walls get resurrected and fortified and the temple gets rebuilt, and although for a time it looks like everyone recommits to the law and it's going to go back to what they dreamed and desired, it doesn't end that way. People don't follow through. Nehemiah goes on a bit of a rampage. And the temple eventually... Is destroyed again. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says, the story shows that the return of many Israelites to Jerusalem was only one step toward the fulfillment of the prophetic hope of the new covenant and the kingdom of God. The full realization of that hope came only when God himself entered personally into Israel's story and the person of their Messiah and King. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and through the gift of the Spirit, the story took a quantum leap forward. And we'll get back to that part of the biblical story soon enough. So we have to understand where this is in the context of the greater Scripture, the greater scope of Scripture. We can see how this story moves us closer to understanding of when the new covenant Is set in motion. And so we look at this story not so much as an example of this is the type of leadership qualities that Christians to aspire to, but instead understand who these people are and what it was that they were experiencing and how it is that they responded. Tamaki goes on to say that biblical literature doesn't communicate by offering simple examples, simple answers and moral examples. Rather, the characters that populate the biblical stories are deeply flawed, often ambiguous, and a mixed bag of success and failure. So instead of looking at this as this is how biblical leaders should lead, instead this should show us about the very human nature of these people who were trying as hard as they could to do what was right, Praying and acting, experiencing fear and adversity, dirty and tired, not giving up hope. And so in this way, we can look at what those who were rebuilding the wall were experiencing and connect to their story and contemplate what God might be teaching us through their journey in our own lives. We've been talking about having the courage to rebuild, the courage to dream again. The question I have for us is what do you do when you feel like you have been made to do something? You have a deep conviction, you have a passion, you have a dream before you and you start to experience some adversity. You start to experience Some setbacks, some friction. I don't know if I've ever told this story here or not, but it was about seven or so years ago, and we experienced something a little bit like this. It was the week leading up to Easter and our one year anniversary as the new church here on Roosevelt Island. And just like all good neighborhoods, Roosevelt Island has a very lively social media group connection that happens here. Sometimes it's, you know, to to give away free furniture or to help new transplants find out about things. But I was scrolling through one of the social media platforms that week leading up to Easter. And I see someone posts and asks a group of thousands of people on the island... Hey, who is it that's leading that church that meets in this chapel on Sunday afternoons? We used to meet at Sundays at 4.30, okay? This is part of our history, important for you to know this. But who, who are those people? And I was like, this is awesome. Look at this, like, God, how good are you? Free press, the week of Easter, like, I don't even have to put anything out there. Like, you're just, you're going before us. And so somebody responds and they say, oh, you should get to know the Saddlers. They're the ones who are doing that. Here's the name of the church. Why do you ask? And the person responds that he had wandered into a service the weekend before, just for a little bit, overheard a little bit of what was happening, and had come to the conclusion that we were anti-Semitic, we were dangerous, and we needed to be stopped at all costs, I was like, oh no. It was intense. What happened next was a back and forth of trying to explain, okay, no, this is actually what you heard. It was totally the opposite. Here's the full transcript of everything that was said. It didn't matter. He had heard what he had heard. He was going to rally whoever he could to stop the progress on the thing that we had believed God was calling us to build. Facing opposition. Opposition. I felt called and convicted to do the good work of God for God, passionate and prayerful and excited and I was met with slander and misunderstanding and honestly what felt at the time is potentially physical violence. And so I look at this story of those trying to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem and I have some, some empathy. Feeling so called to build something and hearing the rumblings that they're going to be stopped, that there's opposition. So, my question for you is when you experience that, how do you handle the haters? Do you retreat? There are many of us, when we experience any sort of opposition or setbacks, when we receive a rejection letter from the graduate program or the job opportunity or when the relationship isn't going the way that we thought it had, we just, we're we're done. We give up and we retreat. We're like, it's too much. You stop dreaming. You experience that friction. You're just like, I'm done. Potentially, it's because the thought of failure is just too painful to bear. Might, might blame it on God. Well, Jesus says, you know, his burden is easy and light. Just saying about that, right? This is hard. I'm done. Or maybe God closed the door. But we have to ask the question is that true? Is that really what's happening always when we face opposition? Is that really what God's saying? Is that what he means? Are we meant to only take easy opportunities? Because yes, Jesus talks about his burden being easy and light, but he also looks at his disciples and says, before you follow me, count the cost. Because this is going to be costly. So what do you do? How do you handle it? Do you cower in fear? Or do you power up? Nehemiah does not cower in fear. No, he does the opposite. He presents his strength. He's like, oh, you think you're going to stop this? No. Yes, he prays. Yes, he calls out to God. But I, I don't necessarily see that he gets a response before he acts. He doubles down. Verse 16, from that day on, half my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows. Burden bearers carried their loads in such a way that each labored with one hand and with the other hand they held a weapon. They held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Said to the people at the time, Let every man and his servant pass the night inside. They may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me ever took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. And i got to be honest, as I read this, and you are more than welcome to disagree with me on my assessment and think that Nehemiah is the most stellar leader ever and that this is the type of decisive leadership that we need in times of crisis. Maybe. But again, I believe that this is not a list of leadership lessons for us to aspire to, but instead for us to see how God is faithful in the story, even when we potentially aren't. As we look at this story, the reality is they're never attacked. There are rumors of attack. There's rumors of opposition. Opposition. There are people from the outside who are upset that the city will be closed off by physical walls. But I wonder if Nehemiah overcorrects here. Laboring in one hand with one hand and a weapon in the other, no one changes their clothes. No labor unions happening here, right? His focus and his vision on the end, product and end, goal. Potentially misuses a lot of people along the way. Has him respond with this need to power up and show his strength. You no, know, there's a lot of us when we feel opposition, we respond like Nehemiah does. I've got to cut this off before this grows too big. I need to be prepared for anything. We see anyone who's maybe not with us as enemies that we need to handle. I see a bit of irony in Nehemiah's response. Remember the Lord. Fight for your family. Kid, here's a sword. Work from sunup to sundown. Don't change your clothes. When we experience friction, do we retreat? Do we power up? There's been some conflict that I've been dealing with for a bit right now. And there is a meeting scheduled for some mediation. And as soon as I got the request for that mediation, my initial response was, okay, I need to get ready. I essentially need to fill up my ammo to make sure that I am perceived as the one in the right and that this person is in the wrong. I've got to make sure the other person knows that I'm not about to back down. I immediately go into it and start to see that this is a battle between me and the other person. And I feel the burden of defending myself. Sure, yes, I'll throw a quick prayer up to God, but then I will plan and live in such a way that he's not going to come through. And so when we experience these things, do we retreat, do we power up, or can we trust that there really is a God who is fighting for us? Nehemiah armed the people with literal weapons, which in his context and his time, I understand why he did, and I'm sympathetic to his cause. But on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, we are not meant to suit up for physical battle. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that we are meant to be fit with spiritual armor, not physical armor, because our battle is not against one another. In Ephesians he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, not yours. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, not the people. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm, therefore fasten the belt of truth around your waist, put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is not a real sword, it's the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times. As we rebuild, as we pursue dreams and desires, as we pursue plans that we believe to our core that God has called us to, as we move through the world really in any way at all, we will face opposition and setbacks and people who don't understand or agree with what we are doing. Do we retreat? Do we puff up and defend ourselves in our own strength or do we put on spiritual armor with the understanding that our struggle and our fight is not against flesh and blood even when it seems like it is? Can we immerse ourselves in truth and living rightly using our faith as a shield? Our swords, not actual swords, but The word of God, part of why we study this, part of why we look at these stories, we go back into these stories and understand is so that we know the story of God. This is our offense and defense. We can look and say, see, look, see how God was faithful even when the people weren't. See how God was faithful even though they didn't understand what was happening in the moment. We are going to be disappointed in this life. We are going to have things go wrong. We're gonna have haters. The very things that we believed that God called us to aren't going to materialize in the way that we had wanted them to. But if we can be people of faith, as all of that happens, we'll be able to stand. Stand firm, upheld by God and his promises and his truth and his love. We won't employ abusive leadership tactics to get our project complete. We won't live in paranoia about those out there who are trying to bring us down and stop us. We'll be able to stand firm and trust that the God who called us will be faithful. And we know that he is faithful because... Of Jesus we can trust that God is faithful because of Jesus because we have the whole story Jesus knew that his temple his body would be torn down he had come to bring the kingdom of God the new way of living the truth about who God is and who we are and oh he faced opposition the rumors about those who wanted to kill him didn't stay as rumors. They were acted on. Does he run and hide? No. Does he power up and fight back? No. He stood firm and the Father. Even to the point of praying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. He goes so far as to say, consume my flesh and my blood so that you might be people who are part of the new covenant, knowing you don't have to, you don't have to cower in fear nor do you have to power up and overtake. But you can trust that I have and I am and I will be faithful to that which I have called you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have access to these stories, that we can look back and see the way that you worked through imperfect people See the way in which you have revealed yourself over the course of time ultimately in the person of Jesus who helps us be able to live not overwhelmed by fear, not consumed with the need to produce and progress, but to be able to be people of peace and of love and of your very good gospel truth. And so Lord, as we prepare our hearts to do just that, to consume you, to take you in, I pray that pray that you would meet us this morning. We'd be able to center our hearts and our minds on your faithfulness, on your goodness, on the radical way that you love us, which really does give us courage to rebuild to dream in our lives. In Jesus name. Amen.